Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Richard, when you think of the word science, what comes to mind? Well, I know what should come to mind, Jim. Objectivity, rigor, things like double-blind testing by researchers, control groups, and, and also peer review by fellow scientists. It, exactly. But today we're going to talk about a field that calls itself a science, but doesn't have many of those safeguards that keep science objective. Worse, this very questionable discipline has been corrupting the American justice system since at least the 1970s and arguably even earlier. Junk Science in the Courtroom with Chris Fabricant. Jurors go into court with the expectation that two things. One is that there will be scientific evidence available. And two, that that evidence will be conclusive. And that's just not the reality of our legal system at all. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? We may think we know how forensic science works. Most of us have been watching it on TV for decades. But our guest today says reality is very different from popular fiction. So all those TV shows and true crime podcasts make assumptions about the collection of evidence that simply aren't true. Shocking, I know. (laughs) M. Chris Fabricant joins us. He is the director of strategic litigation for the Innocence Project, which is a remarkable legal organization that works to free prisoners jailed for crimes they did not commit. Over three decades, the Innocence Project has freed more than 300 unjustly convicted prisoners, and more than 40% of those cases involved the misuse of forensic evidence. This is the story that Chris Fabricant tells in his new book called Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. What you're going to hear is pretty shocking. Chris joins us from New York City. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? One of the most alarming cases that you've been involved with during your years at the Innocence Project, Chris, was Eddie Lee Howard, who was wrongfully convicted of murdering an elderly white woman and spent 26 years fighting for his innocence. You were on the legal team that represented him. Howard was finally exonerated early last year. He'd been on death row. Tell us more about that case. 
Eddie Lee Howard was a, a poor black man living in Columbus, Mississippi in the early 1990s. On the day of this incident that he was ultimately charged and convicted of murder, he spent the afternoon with family members at his house. At that same time, a woman named Georgia Kemp was home alone in her bungalow in Columbus, Mississippi. Somebody broke into her house, stabbed her to death, apparently raped her, and burned the house down. There were no eyewitnesses, there were no suspects, they had no leads. So what the Columbus police did was conduct a dragnet through Eddie Lee Howard's neighborhood and picked up arbitrarily black men that had criminal records and Eddie Lee Howard fit that bill. They decided that they were going to interrogate Mr. Howard. Mr. Howard made some vaguely incriminating statements, but also plainly wrong because they were inconsistent with the facts of the case. And there was no other evidence against him. But they decided that he was good for it. He was their only suspect and that they were going to paint a bullseye around this target. And so what happened after that was that they decided that bite mark evidence was the way that they were going to prove that Mr. Howard committed this murder and this rape. And that's exactly what they did. But despite that lack of evidence, Eddie Lee Howard was convicted. Uh, bite mark evidence, which is now a largely discredited part of forensic science, was used during the trial. It was claimed that Howard's teeth matched marks on the victim's body. But police had no evidence when they picked him up. However, they decided that Howard was the murderer, right? Yeah, I mean, I have to assume that they must have believed that. But, you know, why they would believe that is somewhat mysterious to me. They picked him up. And, you know, the idea that they had decided that he had committed this crime and that they were going to prove that they, he had committed this crime, we don't need to look at any other evidence apart from the fact that the same day they arrested him is the same day they took him to get a dental mold taken of his teeth. And the body of the victim had not yet even been exhumed. They just assumed that they would be able to find some bite marks and be able to match Eddie Lee Howard's teeth to them. And the medical examiner who did the autopsy on her, he initially didn't say that he'd seen any bite marks. There was nothing like that in his report. And she was already buried at this point, and they dug her up again. Yeah. So when I first got involved in the case and I looked through the autopsy reports, what became immediately apparent was that there were no bite marks visible on her neck, the victim's neck. There were no visible bite marks on her breast. And there were no visible bite marks on her arm. And there were photographs taken of the entire body that showed no injuries. So the idea that they would think to exhume this body four days later after Eddie Lee Howard's arrest to search for bite marks is highly suspect. He had a really good alibi. There wasn't much evidence tying him to the crime. But then you mentioned bite mark evidence. The, the prosecutors brought in a forensic odontologist, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a bite mark expert. What did he do? So we have to be clear that the bite mark expert that we're talking about is the probably, you know, the most notorious forensic, you know, so-called scientist in the annals of junk science. Michael West. You could think, listening to what you've said, this is simply a case of racism in the Deep South. But is it much broader than that? 
Well, certainly it is a case of racism in the Deep South, and racism is endemic to our entire criminal legal system. You know, that's certainly very well documented. This case is exceptional in the sense that even for a junk science conviction, just how little evidence and how junky it was and the total lack of actual tangible evidence to observe. This is just somebody saying something on the witness stand with not even props. In that sense, it's unusual. But really, the introduction of junk science is what facilitated this conviction. And all of them are similar in the sense that you have somebody that's on a witness stand that's given the imprimatur of an expert by the court in front of the jury. That expert is given great deference by lay people, most of whom are scientifically illiterate. We have this massive problem with that in this country, and lawyers are certainly no exception. So when you have somebody on the witness stand, no matter no matter how incredible that witness may in fact be, when those experts are using a lot of scientific jargon and are using esoteric terms that lay jurors don't really understand, and there's this superficial appeal that most junk science has, like, so, oh, yeah, I saw a bite mark, I matched some teeth to it, that can overcome uh, alibi evidence, it can overcome any kind of alternative suspects that might be available. It can overcome even sometimes DNA evidence. The idea that you could look at a bite mark in soft human flesh and then tie that to one specific set of human teeth seems like kind of a stretch. How did this branch of forensics become so widely accepted? Bite mark evidence was just an idea of a few forensic dentists that were working in medical examiner's offices identifying human remains. And what happened in the 1970s is that you had this explosion of the field of forensic science. And forensic scientist was suddenly a profession that you could aspire to, interesting and crime fighting and you know the Quincy was a hugely popular show about you know a crime fighting forensic pathologist and the FBI crime lab had come online and they were lionized as G-men with microscopes fanning out across the country and solving crimes you know and so a lot of people became interested in the field and certainly that included the forensic dentists who were already kind of working in forensics the problem was is that you, that's very rarely an issue in a criminal trial. They weren't getting to be expert witnesses. They weren't making any money, and they weren't getting to solve crimes or be part of an investigation team, which is really where the action is. And they wanted in on the action. So they invented bite marks. And they found the perfect test case because the original bite mark experts, after they invented all these credentials, right, they invented a club that they called the American Board of Forensic Odontology, and they started giving each other board certification without having to prove that you could actually do any of this. And then they went into court, made this argument that really, well, we do identifications of bodies and we do identification of bite marks, you know, it's really the same thing. And they started pointing towards bite marks as an identification technique. In other words, that they were seeing dead bodies with entries that they thought could be bite marks. There's no way to know. And they kind of had this superficial logic. Well, if we find the teeth that made those marks and we match them, we would have the culprit, right? So it's like a fingerprint. So that was their hypothesis that they never bothered to test, right? So, you know, they went into court. The first case, the judge admitted it. And that case just took off like a virus throughout the criminal legal system and became the precedent-establishing case 
in 20 different states that I outline in the book, including, you know, most notoriously, and really what brought the bite marks into the mainstream, was the Ted Bundy trial. That case rose and fell on bite mark evidence. Ted Bundy was the convicted mass murderer? Yes, that's right. So there had never been a nationally televised criminal trial in American history until the Ted Bundy trial. We've been talking to a considerable extent about bite mark evidence, but that's only one part of the field of forensic science, which took off 30, 40, 50 years ago and then uh, spawned a whole bunch of, of TV shows. To what extent has popular culture, uh, TV shows, now podcasts, had an influence on what actually happens in many jury rooms? You know, part of the reason that I wrote the book was to try to correct the popular culture narrative around the infallibility of forensic sciences as they're depicted on shows like CSI and Law and Order and all the rest, you know what I mean? And all of those shows depict forensics as not just infallible, but conclusive and no room for really interpretation. They caught the bad guy using that show. So jurors go into court with the expectation that two things. One is that there will be scientific evidence available, and two, that that evidence will be conclusive. And that's just not the reality of our legal system at all. And any scientist will tell you that uncertainty is fundamental to science, and that's certainly true of statistics in particular. And the lack of a statistical foundation is the heart of the problem of all the forensic techniques that I talk about in junk science. That includes fingerprints, that includes so-called ballistics or firearms and tool mark evidence, that includes shoe prints, tire treads, you name it. You know, microscopic hair comparison, bite mark evidence, certainly, all these techniques. You don't have the statistical foundation that you have in DNA evidence. In science, you have to work hard to overcome your expectations, your cognitive biases, your tendency to see what you want to see or what you expect to see. And science has a whole bunch of different techniques to ensure that things like double blind tests. Forensics works very differently, doesn't it? I mean, I used the phrase painting a bullseye around a target earlier in our interview, and that's exactly what this does, either deliberately or unconsciously, because bias works both ways. And the most pernicious form is implicit or unconscious bias. This is one of the most well-established areas of social science research that we have. And it's been documented to influence decision-making in every single forensic field, including DNA and forensic anthropology and bite marks and in fingerprints. And the idea here is because there's subjectivity in forensics, all forensics involve some subjectivity, including DNA. Sometimes just the experts are explicitly told that this is the victim and that this is the suspect and the suspect is in custody and we need you to match this evidence, otherwise the suspect's going to get away. And, you know, the expert community, the forensic expert community is resistant to this notion that they can be influenced, that somehow they're not human, their minds don't work like everybody else's does, where biases play a role in all of our decision making. It's a normal product of human decision making. You're listening to Chris Fabricant, author of the new book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You've mentioned fingerprints. Most of us think of fingerprint analysis as being totally objective, cut and dried. But in so many cases, it isn't, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, and this is certainly this is true in every television show that you ever see. You know, I mean, is that, oh, there's a fingerprint match. It's, you know, done and done. And to be clear, fingerprints can be very reliable evidence, certainly not junk science. But you can make something that is an otherwise valid technique into junk if you don't have enough information. And so when you think about a latent fingerprint in a crime scene, how much information is available is really the threshold issue, right? Is that a high enough quality of a latent fingerprint where you can actually make a source attribution? And how much information that you actually need is unknown, right? Every examiner has their own personal subjective threshold to how much, you know, minutia or, you know, these are the, the little lines that are on our fingers, you know, the how much of those need to match before they're willing to declare an identification. And so when you don't have a lot of information, then you have the likelihood that there might be many, many more fingerprints that would also match that. And so the information that we also don't have is how similar two prints are, you know, close non-matches that share gross characteristics. You mentioned DNA. How did the development of crime scene DNA analysis in the late 80s, early 90s, how did that change this whole field? Changed everything. Before that, you know, things like eyewitness identification evidence, confession evidence, forensic sciences, these were believed to be, you know, fundamentally reliable. And they were the pillars uh, that are holding up tens of millions of convictions from centuries of uh, prosecutions in our criminal justice system. And wrongful convictions were believed to have been a vanishingly rare occurrence. Along comes forensic DNA testing. And what was really, really important, Barry Shack and Peter Neufeld, when they co-founded the Innocence Project 30 years ago this year, what was really genius is that they decided that they were not going to make any subjective judgments around guilt or innocence of the people that were writing in for our help. The only criteria as to whether they would take a case or not was if DNA evidence can be found and tested in this case, would that prove innocence? doesn't matter what the quantum of evidence was against this person otherwise. 
And as a result, we learned cases where you had six eyewitnesses that are all saying that the, the defendant was there and he you know, committed this crime, that were all wrong. All six could be wrong. They have people confessing to capital murders that they had not committed. That was thought to be an impossibility. So DNA evidence revolutionized the thinking around how we fairly administer justice in this country. And the fight about how fairly we've been doing that has been on for those last 30 years, too, because there are lots of innocence deniers out there. Jim's going to laugh at this question, and uh, maybe you will too, Chris. But what is DNA evidence, and why should DNA evidence be so much better or more convincing in criminal trials? So, well, DNA is the blueprints that make us all unique. It is the blueprints that are protein brutents that create the, the human body and who we are as people. And so when this was transferred into crime scene evidence, in other words, forensic DNA as opposed to regular DNA evidence, there were a lot of problems with that, about cleaning up samples and about contamination and about how to deal with contamination and about how to deal with mixed samples where, you know, now today we have, you know, mixtures as high as seven or eight people in one tiny little um, droplet of evidence. So it gets increasingly complex, but fundamentally, DNA evidence is, or DNA is the blueprint of life. And if you can find a DNA profile at a crime scene, it's extremely strong evidence that that person, that individual is there. And as far as we know, everybody has their own individual, unique DNA. Apart from identical twins, as far as we know, that's right. But, you know, even in DNA, you know, because we don't know this for a, a fact, you know, I mean, uh, I believe that it probably is unique. Same way that I believe fingerprints are probably unique because we haven't found any two that have been identical yet. Partly as a result of the ability to go back and review old cases based on new ability to analyze DNA evidence, a lot of cases started getting overturned through the work of the Innocence Project and others. And a lot of some of these famous forensic scientists were seeing cases where they'd been pivotal to a conviction get thrown out and, and prisoners released. So in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences did a big in-depth study of forensic science to see what was wrong with all of these convictions. What did they find? You know, the takeaway was, you know, exactly what we've been talking about before. And what they said was that apart from nuclear DNA analysis, and that's basically one um, contributor to one sample, apart from nuclear DNA analysis, no forensic technique. That means firearms, that means fingerprints, certainly means bite marks, are capable of identifying the source of crime scene evidence. And this is despite our courts and American criminal courts have accepted those claims for a century. You know, the National Academy of Sciences really called out that the emperor has no clothes. And that fight has been waged, you know, against that report and mainstream science ever since. That report was 13 years ago in 2009. Where are we now, Chris? When you look at you know the cases that I'm litigating today, it's easy to be very depressed. I should not have to be still litigating bite mark cases. I should not have to need, nobody should have to need to convince a judge that this is junk science. 
And yet, I have three clients on death row that were put there by bite mark evidence still today, including one that involves Michael West. And I just was notified about a case in New Jersey where they're attempting to take a bite mark mold of a homicide suspect to use bite mark evidence in this case. So are we making progress? To some extent, um, one of the main recommendations of the 2009 report was independence of crime labs, which is so intuitive is that there isn't like prosecutor science and defense science, right? It's the people science, right? It's science is science, right? And so there shouldn't be scientists that only work for the prosecution. But as we have it in this country, is that budgets are tied to law enforcement agencies. Police officers so-called graduate to crime labs, right? A lot of these forensic experts have a crime fighter's mentality. And then you have all the subjectivity that's included in this and all the bias that we talked about already. And you really have the weaponization of forensics against criminal defendants and really to serve as useful prosecution tools rather than a true exploration of the truth. The Innocence Project worked on the Eddie Lee Howard case for well over a decade you finally won his release from prison in 2020. He'd been on death row for 26 years. What is it like seeing a man re-enter society after spending most of his adult life unfairly locked away? You know, I, I, I think about my own life, you know, what I've been up to the last 25 years. That's my entire legal career, right? I had kids. I got married. I had a career. I got old. All these things happened, you know, while Eddie Lee Howard was sitting on death row. When he got out, you know, he had to learn to take full strides again because he'd been in leg irons 23 hours a day. And, you know, to try to reenter society where there was no cell phones, you know, there was no internet. So to step into a world where you have the internet in the palm of your hand at any given moment is really almost impossible for anybody to imagine. And then you layer on top of that, all of our clients have PTSD. And you can imagine the experience of being wrongfully convicted and sent to death row to await execution for something that you had nothing to do with. And to really have lost hope as a result of not having DNA evidence, maybe not even, you know, and you're one in a million if you get an innocence project lawyer, right? You know, we're a small shop, certainly compared to the scale of the criminal justice system, which 2.3 million people incarcerated in this country. Talk about your passion for this work at the Innocence Project. What gets you going every day? I'm so lucky. I have like the, the best job in the criminal justice system. I tell that to anybody that will listen. What I love about my work is that my job is inherently political and that I get to go into work and fight the good fight every single day. And it's what gets me up in the morning and it, what motivates me to work late in the, into the night is that I get to channel my, my passion and my outrage into my work. I mean, I'm, you can probably hear it in my voice. You know, I mean, this is a, you know, what I live for. You know, I mean, and if you, if you can combine passion like that with, uh, with your work, it's uh, the best of both worlds. I wish it wasn't such depressing work, but there it is. Thank you, Chris Fabricant. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Coming next, a quick recommendation. 
Richard, I did the one last week. What have you got for us this week? Well, surprisingly for me, Jim, it is not a podcast or a TV show, even a crime drama. It's a book, a wonderful book by Anglo-American journalist Simon Winchester, uh, someone who I've been reading for, for many years. And the book is called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. It is a very entertaining, interesting, and sweeping account that will challenge um, or at least force readers to question some of their views about land and about uh, Native peoples in the United States, in Australia, in other countries as well. Uh, so it has a global perspective to it, and it is just a, a really well-written well-told, and for the most part, well-judged book. Couldn't agree more, Richard. I actually listened to this book uh, during a recent road trip, and I'm a big Simon Winchester fan. Next up, it's our conversation about junk science in the courtroom. Jim, we heard a lot that I was not aware of. And I think you said to me that if you read this book, Junk Science, um, by Chris Fabricant, that you do not come away with anything other than a jaundiced view of much of what's going on in the American criminal justice system, right? Absolutely. And no one should be sanguine about the power, the awesome power that the government has when someone is accused of a crime. There's nothing quite like the power that a, a DA or a federal prosecutor has over a defendant in our system. And to see it abused in this way it is really unsettling and kind of shocking. And what we didn't get into in our discussion with Chris because how often, even when evidence emerges, even when it's clear that people were railroaded in some way, the officials, they tend to be very reluctant to go back, reopen cases, admit the mistakes might have been made, and very willing to just say, let's, keep, let's just keep the books closed on this case. Don't stir up trouble. And that's why the Innocence Project has to fight for often years or decades even when their case is, you would think, open and shut that somebody's innocent. One of the most shocking things that Chris Fabricant wrote is this simple sentence that the field of criminal forensic science is entirely unregulated. In other words, you can claim you're an expert when really you're not at all, when you're just making stuff up. It's opinions, really. And Partly that's because, as he said, it didn't come out of science. It came out of law enforcement. So the practitioners are judged not by their accuracy, but by whether or not they get a conviction. And that's how they get status, prestige. That's how they get called into more cases. And ultimately, it's how a lot of them make their money, is by being well-paid expert witnesses. The fundamental reform that Chris mentioned crime labs need to be independent. They need to be free of overwhelming influence by either prosecutors or the police. They should not know who the suspect is. They shouldn't have any of that sort of information. And what that would mean was 
often the results coming back from the crime lab would be more ambiguous. That would be the honest scientific approach. Science is all about admitting doubt, avoiding premature certainty. Forensic science went the complete opposite way. Hopefully now the pendulum is swinging back, but not fast enough. Well, I have premature certainty that this show is about to end uh, for this <laughs> for for this episode. Um, thanks again, Jim, for for uh, reading the book and uh, bringing Chris Fabricant to us. I think this is what our podcast is all about, really. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies, and I'm Jim Meggs. Another show coming up in two weeks' time. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and. This podcast is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.